0: One verse to begin with, or I think it is in actual fact three verses, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 to 70. Or we'll read from verse 14. But abide thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a babe thou hast known the sacred writings which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Every scripture is inspired of God and is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction for instruction which is in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, furnished completely unto every good work. Now, this evening we are going to deal with this question of the authority of the Bible. uh, There are three words which we generally associate with this subject authority, the word authority, the word revelation, and the word inspiration. And this evening we shall um, confine ourselves more or less to this word authority, and perhaps another evening we will take the other two sides of the matter, revelation and inspiration. What do we mean by the authority? Of the Bible, well, we do not just mean the authority of, trans- of the translation we may have. We mean the authority of the, uh, the authority and inspiration of the original as it was first spoken and recorded. We, um, of course, will deal, not this evening, but perhaps another time, with the question of whether there has come any mistake or error into God's Word as it has been copied and passed down from century to century and in its various translations. But when we speak of the authority of God's Word, we are speaking of the original form in which God spoke and the way in which it was first actually put down into writing. What do we mean by the word authority? Why do we speak of the authority of God's Word? We mean that the scriptures have the power and the right in the hand of God to claim our absolute obedience. Now that puts the Bible on a footing that no other book, no other writing, no other uh, uh, literature uh, can have. We speak of the authority of the Bible in the sense that we believe it can claim our absolute obedience in every single part. And not only that, but we believe that it has the right to settle all matters which are in dispute. That is, God's Word is our final court of appeal in the hands of God. From within his word we believe that God can settle all matters that are in dispute. In other words, we refuse to accept that God has given us any other standard by which we can judge our affairs or by which we can settle any uh, confusion or dispute or argument that we might have. We believe that God's word is the final court of appeal. This is what divides us from the Roman Catholic uh, system because uh, there the appeal is to the church as well as to the word of God. In this sense, we believe in the Protestant tradition that God's word is final and is the highest court of appeal to which we can turn and by which the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit can settle all disputes. Not the word of God in the hands of men, but the word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit, settling all matters of faith and conduct and order, personal or corporate. What do we mean by the authority of the Bible? Not only that it claims our absolute obedience, not only that it it can settle all our disputes, but that it has the right and the power to mould and to fashion our lives, not just in one part of our being, but in every part of our being. In other words, we believe that God's Word has the right to fashion us and mould us. That's why we read the scripture here where we read that, it, it, that um, every scripture inspired of God or every scripture is inspired of God, both renderings could be, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. In other words, God's Word uh, is that we might be complete. And it goes on to say, furnished completely unto every good work. In other words, there is not anything that God's word is not able to completely furnish us uh, to do. So that is what we mean by the authority of the Bible. Now, the authority of the Bible lies wholly in the fact that it claims divine authorship not because it happens to be rather wonderful literature, not because it happens to contain some rather remarkable stories, not because it even has the record of the coming into the world of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible's claim to authority rests wholly in its claim to divine authorship. It claims to be the word of the Lord a divinely self-given revelation, a God-given revelation, with power to effect his will in a creative way. In other words, we believe that God's word is not just a, a written form of religion. It is not just a kind of code of ethics or some other rather interesting bits of history, we believe that in every part, not in some parts, but in every part, God's Word has a power latent and inherent within it by which it can effect God's will, if once released, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, in a creative way. In other words, it can create something. God's Word can, in fact, once released, can create faith in the hearer. Not just faith for salvation, it can create faith for works, to do the works of God. It can create faith to enter into a crucified life. It can create faith to take the Holy Spirit. It can create faith to live in the power and endowment of the Holy Spirit. You see, God's word is in itself powerful. And once God's word is free in the hands of the Holy Spirit's sovereignty, then God can use it to create something that is absolutely according to his mind. Now, if you and I, those of us who are young in the Lord and those of us who are older in the Lord, were to understand what we've got within these, within these covers, if we would understand that here is a power that in the hands of the Holy Spirit, spirit is unbelievable and incredible in one sense, we would reverence it very much more. And not only would we reverence it very much more, but we would be more careful and diligent in our study of it. It wouldn't just be something to be got through early in the morning or late at night before we drop into bed, but we would begin to recognise that here within this book are words which once in the hands of the Holy Spirit, and once we're prepared to be obedient to them, can in fact become a creative power able to affect God's willingness. Now it is just this that hampers so many of us. I'm not going to stay so long on this point, but it is this which hampers so many of us because you see the devil's great weapon is unbelief. And if he can only get us to read the Bible with an unbelieving heart, or some unbelief lurking somewhere, he's got his way. We're reading it like literature. It's wonderful. We're reading a historical record. We're we're reading wonderful doctrine. But you see, inside all the time we say, it can't happen. It cannot be. It, it, It cannot take place. You see, it is an the heart of unbelief that the enemy uh, uses, it is his greatest weapon, in the the warfare, the Christian warfare. Well, um, I do believe that uh, if all of us were to understand what Spurgeon once meant when someone was asking him to help finance a society for the defense of God's Word. And Spurgeon refused to help in any way, refused to give a penny towards uh, such a society, because he said, God's Word is like a lion. All you've got to do is take it off its chain. It'll defend itself. And that is absolutely true. God's Word is powerful and living and active. Now, those are the three words which are always associated with God's Word. Powerful, living, active. Do you and I believe it? This is the Word of God. Not just a little bit here that you think is the Word of God and a little bit there that you might think is the Word of God. But in its entirety, as we have it from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it is the Word of the Lord and it is living, powerful, powerful, Oh, if only you and I had it like that. There is a sense in which it is true that God's word is what we believe it is to us. When we believe that it can be and is living, powerful and active, it becomes to us in our personal life living, powerful and active. And when you think it's a dead dog, it becomes a dead dog. That's all. If you just think it's something that is, well, well, it's rather wonderful, but, but, but. It becomes just that to you. And and the more you prod it, the more dead it will seem to you. The more you turn it over, the more it will seem that you can do anything with it. The more you try to master it, the more it will let you master it. It won't do anything for you. And if you and I believe what it is, my word, what it does to us, it starts to carve us up. It starts to to master us. It starts to get a grip on us. And we begin to understand that if we will only allow God's word to do its work, it may be surgical in some cases, uh, but in the end it will always bring us into life and into a large place with the Lord. Well, uh, this book uh, is the word of the Lord and its claim is, its claim to authority is that it is divinely authorized, it is divinely inspired, it is divinely uh, uh, produced, it is God's Word. Now, there are three ways, principally, in which we see this claim to authority in the Bible. First of all, in the Old Testament, we discover it. In the use of of these phrases in various ways, God spake, or God said, or the word of the Lord came. Or, thus saith the Lord. There are some, one authority says that there are some 3,800 such references. To these we've got to add the Acts of God with which the pages of this book are filled. From the very first uh, uh, um, chapters of the book of Genesis, right the way through, you will find this book is crammed not only with the words of God, but with the acts of God. In other words, God has spoken in two ways. One, by words, and two, by acts. And this book, being the word of the Lord, is not just what he says, said but what he did for what god has done is as much his word as what he has said so this book has a great claim the old testament in particular to the to authority in that it claims to contain not once but thousands of times whole passages chapters or more of what is called The word that came from the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, or God spake. Or again, it is the acts of the Lord when he did this, or when he did that, or when he did the other. And then we must add to those two categories, we must add another, as wonderful, if not more wonderful than the other two. And that is the appearances of the Lord. For the Old Testament has not only the words of God and not only the acts of God, but it also has the appearances of God. And not once, but again and again, you discover that God appears. He appears, sometimes in a human form, sometimes in a glory. Sometimes, oh, in all kinds of ways. But we can't stay with that. I'm only mentioning these things. Now, you see, this is the claim of the Old Testament to authority. It's its own claim. Then again, we must um, underline this and say that if we take these three different categories and bring them together and sum them up, it all adds up to one thing. A divinely initiated, a divinely inspired, and a divinely authenticated record or revelation of God. God has revealed himself by words, by acts, and by appearance. The second uh, claim that we discover in this book to its authority to authority, absolute and final authority, is that Christ himself witnessed to it. Now if you will turn with me to quite a number of references. First of all, in John chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 35, this is Jesus speaking. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Now, it is most interesting that Jesus used two things which explode some theories. He used the first word, the word of God came. And nearly all theologians would agree that uh, this book contains God's Word if it is not God's Word. But it is interesting that Jesus goes straight on and says that the script and the Scripture cannot be broken. He equates two things. We go on, uh, Luke, chapter 22, back to Luke, chapter 22, verse 37. For I say unto you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. He was reckoned with transgressors, for that which concerneth me hath fulfilment. So Jesus said it must be fulfilled. This in one sense sums up the attitude of Jesus himself to the Old Testament. The Scripture cannot be broken. It must be fulfilled. Then if you turn on to a number of others, Back to Matthew, Matthew, chapter 5, Matthew 5, verse 17. I'm sorry for any who don't know their way around their Bible too well this evening. There's a number of scriptures. Think not that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, shall in no wise pass away from the law till all things be accomplished. Now, the law, of course, was a term that covered, uh, uh, strictly covered the first five books of the Bible, but was also used to cover most, if not all, of the Old Testament. So Jesus states his faith in that record. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 43. Again, the words of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> he saith unto them, How then doth David in the Spirit call him Lord? That is Christ's estimate of the way in which David wrote the Psalm 110. In the Spirit. Then, uh, that also, by the way, is quoted again in Mark, chapter 12. Then, Matthew, chapter 19, verse 3, or verse 4, we'll read, Jesus answered and said, Have ye not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. Jesus evidently believed that it was God who not only created Adam and Eve, but spoke to them. Then again, if you read Matthew, chapter 22, verse 31. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you? by God, saying, all right, then again in Luke, on to Luke, chapter 16, verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, from that time the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and every man entereth violently into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fall. Chapter 18, verse 31. He took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written through the prophet shall be accomplished unto the Son of Man. Then chapter 24, verse 44. These are my words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must needs be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's the entirety of the Old Testament concerning me. Then opened he their mind that they might understand the Scriptures. And he saith unto them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name unto all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, it is very interesting, when you take all these different scriptures and put them together, you have to come to one conclusion. If you took just one, or you took just another on its own, you might be able to build a theory on it. But if you bring them all together, you must say, if you have an honest and open mind, that Christ obviously, or at least apparently, believed implicitly in the Old Testament. He believed that there God spoke, that it was divinely inspired. That's quite clear. And most of those who understand their scriptures most, but do not would not accept such a uh, uh, um, conclusion must fall back on other theories that the Lord Jesus just simply adjusted himself to the theories of his day. Either Christ uh, uh, really did believe fully in the uh, Old Testament as the word of God, or he just simply had to adjust himself to it and apparently believe it, when he knew that a lot of it was not actually so. But there is much more. I cannot give you the Scriptures because it would take us the whole evening, but I just run through a whole list of things which are very interesting. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ believed in Isaiah's authorship. He speaks of Isaiah writing or saying, prophesying, in one or two places. He believes in David's authorship of Psalm 110. He says so. Um, He believes in God's creation of Adam and Eve in the beginning. He believes in the history of Cain and Abel. He believes in the history of Noah and the flood and its consequences and the saving of eight people in the ark. He believes not only that, he believes in the destruction of Sodom and the reason for it. He believes in the turning of Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. He believes in the manner being divinely Uh, given from heaven, a miracle given by God the Father. He believed in the brazen serpent and that it was used to heal those who had sinned. He believed in the the healing of Naaman and said so. He believed in the widow of Zarephath and her remarkable uh, deliverance and being kept. He believed in Jonah, not only in the existence of Jonah, but in the fact that Jonah ran away from his divinely ordained task and was swallowed by a sea monster. He says so. And he believes also that he was coughed up again onto dry land. These things Christ believed. He didn't just say, you've heard the story. He gave a quite clear indication, at least outwardly, that he believed in the actual historical existence of not only the people but circumstances that are recorded about them. Now there is no doubt that Christ believed implicitly in the authority and the inspiration of the Old Testament, and it has been rightly said by someone that the Christian, who in his view of the Bible stands on any lower ground than that on which his Lord stood does so at his spiritual peril. It is also interesting to underline the claims Christ made for what he said. For instance, he never used the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. He never said, thus saith the Lord, although John the Baptist probably did use such phraseology. Jesus instead used a completely new and direct approach. He said, I say unto you. It's most interesting. I say unto you. You read it all the way through the New Testament, you underline it, you'll find again and again and again, they said, I say unto you. They said, so, 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 I say unto you. And then he often used this phrase, verily, verily, I say unto you, when he wants to underline something. In other words, Christ was no mere prophet. He was in fact the embodiment of the word of God, and they who had only, as it were, been his mouthpiece in the Old Testament, now he had no need of a mouthpiece. He was not only the word but the mouthpiece as well. And it is also interesting that in uh, John chapter 14 and verse 26 he seems to look forward to what we could call the rest of the New Testament. In chapter 14 and verse 26, we read these words, But the Comforter, even the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said unto you. And it's very interesting that Jesus said that, to underline the very writing of the Synoptic Gospels as well as John, and also to infer authority upon what later would be written by the others. Then again in John chapter 16 and verse 12 we read this, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Isn't that amazing? And he is inferring that he is going to say a good deal more, but he can't say it now, he's just about to die. Then he goes on, howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth. For he shall not speak from himself, but what things soever he shall hear, these shall he speak, and he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. That's interesting. It covers the whole of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall declare it unto you. So here we have the second great claim in the Bible to final and absolute authority, the witness of Christ himself. The third is that the New Testament witnesses to the authority of the Old as well as to its own authority. Now there's a number of scriptures. Can we turn to them swiftly? Could you go right back to the beginning of the New Testament? Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. Matthew 1 verse 22. Now all this has come to pass that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. It's an interesting phrase, occurs a number of times in the New Testament. Spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Then chapter 2 verse 15. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Then again turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. Acts 1 verse 16. Brethren, it was needful that the scripture should should be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spake before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. The Holy Spirit spake by the mouth of David. That again is very interesting. Turn on chapter 4, verse 25. Who the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David thy servant didst say. Then again chapter 28, Acts chapter 28, verse 25. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Spirit through Isaiah the prophet. So here we have uh, some references. Now turn on to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 2. For what if some sorry, much every way, first of all, that they, that is the Jews, were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God. Then again, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 to 17. Now we have read that, so I'll leave that to your memory. We read that at the beginning of the time. Hebrews 1, verse 5. To verse 8. Now, we won't read it all, but I want to point out to you here that between verse 5 and verse 8 and verse 13, in all this last part of chapter 1, you have seven different quotations of various parts of the Old Testament, and every one of them begins with this. Um, Unto which of the angels said he, that is God, at any time thou art? And again, verse 7, none of the angels God said." And then verse 13, but of which of the angels hath God said at any time? You see, it's very interesting. It's, again, there is a claim that God spake all this. God was the author of it all, although we know that many of them were by different human agents. Then again, Hebrews 2, verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and so on, verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which, having at the first been spoken through the Lord, was confirmed unto us by them that heard? You've got the whole Bible there, Old and New Testament. So the Lord is behind it all. God is behind it all. God speaking in the beginning through angels, and then through the Lord, and then through them who confirmed it. Then again, if you will turn. To Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 7, wherefore, even as the Holy Spirit saith today, if uh, if you will hear his voice harden not your hearts, and so on. Chapter 4, verse 4, and he, that is God, hath said, and so on. This is about another part which we know to be written by Moses. That's very interesting because it's history and not an actual quotation of what God said. Then again, if you go on, um, you'll find Hebrews 12. We'll, we'll skip that, I think. Hebrews 12, 25 26, you can put it down if you're making any reference. Again, it's another claim to God speaking. Now turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what time or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did point unto, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow them, to whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto you did they minister these things which now have been announced unto you through them that preached the gospel. There we have a a claim that it was the Holy Spirit who was in the prophets. Now the word the prophets here does not just simply mean uh, the actual technical section of the Old Testament which we call the prophets, but covers a whole, a much larger realm including Moses and many others who in the scripture are termed prophets. Then again, if you will turn on to 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spake from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. That covers a very large section of the Old Testament. Then, again, I want you to note two special references in Romans, chapter 15, Verse 4. I know this is an awful lot of uh, references, but, you know, people speak so glibly and so lightly when challenged in their offices and by other people how they believe in God's word, and really they cannot give any reason why they do, except that people think that you're just credulous and a bit woolly-headed, and, not to say the least, probably very simple-minded, but very good to know upon what your faith really rests. Chapter 15, verse 4. This is a very interesting verse. Listen. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and through comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. It's a very comprehensive verse. Whatsoever things were written before time, were written for our learning. that's very interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. This is the other verse I want you to underline very carefully. Now, these things happened unto them by way of example. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Two very interesting uh, verses which uh, cover a very large part of the Old Testament, if not all of it. Now a few more. We've covered the New Testament, some of the scriptures that um, uh, witness to the authority of the Old Testament. Now does the New Testament witness to its own authority? Again, this is interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We know, I'm not going to now speak about schools. So I've already shown you some of the things that Christ has said. His claims were absolutely direct and dogmatic. Believe we'll that. But in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, this is an interesting verse. If any man thinketh himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him take knowledge of the things which I write unto you, that they are the commandment of the Lord. That's interesting because it comes at the end of this whole letter in which there are many, many things written. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, verse 13. And for this cause we also thank God without ceasing, that when he received from us the word of the message, even the word of God, he accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also worketh in you that believe. So they believed that their word, not only which they spoke, but the word which they wrote, was in fact uh, the word of God. Then again, 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the, the one reference I find the most interesting of all the kind of verse that you gloss over when you're reading and you don't really take full note of it. 2 chapter, ch- two Peter, chapter 3, verse 16. Now listen very carefully. I'll read it. As also, in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, wherein are some things hard to be understood, which the ignorant and unsteadfast rest, as they do also the other Scriptures, as they do also the other Scriptures unto their own destruction. That's the most amazing thing for the Apostle Peter to write. He actually looked upon the epistles of Paul as Scripture in his lifetime. In Paul and Peter's own lifetime he looked upon the letters of Paul as Scripture and referred to as also the other Scriptures, not as also the Scriptures but as also the other scriptures. That's interesting, because it shows that toward the end of Paul and Peter's ministry, they had already begun to recognize that what, they were, what, they were, what was being written down of their message was the Word of God. It was already forming into the conclusion of the Old Testament. Now you see, all this, when you bring it together, is... Is a, is a wealth of evidence for a claim to divine authorship. You cannot get over it. You, you, you cannot just dissect it. Uh, you get, in fact, into more trouble that way. The whole point is that when you take the Bible as a whole, Old Testament and New Testament, you have this threefold claim to divine authorship. Uh, in the Old Testament, within itself, Christ's witness to old and to what he was saying as well as what was to come, and also the New Testament's witness to the authority of the old as well as to its own authority. You know, it is very interesting when you um, read Revelation and the very last chapter that this book, which was one of the most contested pieces of Scripture and which, in the fourth century, was still not completely and universally recognised as part of the canon of Scripture, ends up with these words in its final place to which now universal recognition is given to it. It ends with these words, I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto them, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city which are written in this book. They're sobering words. Primarily they speak, of course, of the actual book of Revelation. But it is interesting that they are amongst the closing words of this whole record, this revelation of God. Now, those are three claims that are clear within the Bible itself. There are also some other ways in which this claim is supported. And in our closing moments this evening, I want just to dwell on those other um, ways that the claim to final authority is supported. First, and here's a very interesting fact, whenever and wherever the Holy Spirit is sovereign and free, he unfailingly witnesses to the absolute authority and inspiration of the Bible. This is a remarkable fact in both persons and in movement. If you look into church history, you will have to look a long, long way to find any man, if you can find one, in whom the Holy Spirit was sovereign and free, who did not recognize the authority and inspiration of God's Word. Going right back to the church fathers, It is a most remarkable fact. Now, of course, we can say many other things about this, but we must say straight away that as soon as a movement begins to depart from this foundation of the authority and inspiration of God's Word, it loses its spiritual character. Now, church history is strewn with such monuments of things which began, by, which were begun by the Holy Spirit, which gave unfailing allegiance not only to the Lord Jesus Christ, his divinity, and to orthodox doctrine, but also to the authority and inspiration of God's word. And then, gradually, the shift of emphasis came, and slowly but surely they departed, and they become philanthropic societies. They become just simply movements that are, uh, out of which the spiritual fire and the spiritual character has long since departed. I'm not saying you won't find true Christians in such things. You do. But what I am saying is that when the Holy Spirit was sovereign and free, it is interesting that he seemed to witness to the authority of God's word. And when he was no longer sovereign and no longer free, it is interesting that the authority of God's word was one of the first things to be jettisoned. Well, that's a fact. Another fact which is very interesting, in support of this claim, is the matter of fulfilled prophecy. I don't think there is any more fascinating subject in the whole of the Bible than the matter of fulfilled prophecy. To me, It doesn't matter whether it's messianic, that is, prophecies of Christ which have been fulfilled, or whether it's otherwise prophecies concerning Egypt, prophecies concerning Assyria, prophecies concerning Persia, prophecies concerning Greece and Rome. All these things which have been fulfilled are in themselves the most remarkable evidence for divine authorship. You see, it is interesting that in the book of Deuteronomy, God says that one of the evidences of true, uh, of, of, of a, the source of a thing being divine, is whether what is said is fulfilled. And it is certainly true that the Bible, uh, it, within itself, uh, gives plenty of evidence, if that's uh, a basis, uh, for it being divinely produced. Well, I could give many examples, but you see, now, this is the kind of thing where we could get sidetracked, because we could literally spend the whole of this evening and two or three other evenings on the question of fulfilled prophecy. But you take just the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah, chapter 7, we're told he'll be born of a young woman or a virgin. The word can mean either. His name shall be called Emmanuel. All right, someone says, Well, that's a bit obscure. We know that he was born of a virgin, but it was a bit it's a bit obscure. Why right, go on? You get that amazing reference in Isaiah 9 to Galilee of the nations, despised Galilee. It tells us that a light is going to come out of Galilee, which is going to lighten the nations. And the most remarkable thing that he goes straight on to unto us the son is born, unto us a child is given, and so on and so forth and so on. It's Christ. Well, all right then, you see, you can't quite read. Go on to Micah chapter 5, and there we get this amazing reference to Bethlehem Ephrata. Out of thee shall come forth he who shall rule in Israel. He who is from everlasting, a most remarkable prophecy to someone who is not just human, but someone who has his being in past eternity, will come into Bethlehem and will come out of Bethlehem, thou who art little amongst amongst the thousands of Judah, and so on and so forth. This man, it says, shall be our peace. This man shall be our peace. The word, the thought is blasphemy. And yet that prophecy, was remarkably fulfilled when Christ was born in Bethlehem. The one concerning Galilee was remarkably fulfilled when he was brought up in Nazareth in Galilee, where he spent the first 30 years of his life. All right then, someone says, I don't quite accept that. Well, what about Zechariah's prophecy about Christ coming into Jerusalem, into Zion, lowly, riding on the foal, the colt of an ass? Colt or the foal of an ass, I think it is. Um, It's remarkably fulfilled. Well, now there someone can say straight away, well, just wait, perhaps the Lord Jesus knew that prophecy. Well, he must have been remarkable, I must say, if he actually knew that prophecy had scanned all the way through the whole of the Old Testament, because to many of us it would be obscure if we didn't know that he had actually fulfilled it. Yet there it stands in the middle of a passage concerning the coming Messiah. And it says that when finally he comes into triumph, into Jerusalem, he will come riding on the colt, the foal of an ass, And everyone will cry, Hosanna. Yes, fulfilled. But a little farther on, you discover there are marks in his hands. He's been wounded in the house of his friend. We're told that a fountain is to be opened for for the uncleanness of the house of David, where it can be washed away. There's prophecy fulfilled. All right. Someone says they still cannot believe. Let me take you then to Isaiah 53. Is there any more remarkable prophecy in the whole of Scripture? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our our peace fell upon him, and with his strength, pipes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We've turned each one to our own way, but the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Listen, carry yourself back into the Old Testament. What is Isaiah talking about? What is he talking about? Where is this conception? This conception of a Messiah is one of of absolute majesty, of absolute power in the eyes and the minds of the whole nation. They longed for the day when their great Deliverer would come and lead the armies of the children of God into the possession of the promised land. He was going to be a greater than Solomon. Oh, yes, that's the kind of man they look for. And here you get Isaiah. Who could he be talking about? Was he talking about himself? Was he talking about some other person in his day? Who was he referring to? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was brute. What is in his mind? There is only one explanation. It was the spirit of Christ that was in him, testifying beforehand unto the sufferings of Christ. Yes, yeah, that's the only way is there any other explanation go on in that marvelous chapter not only before that verse when it speaks of surely he has borne our our sorrows and so on greek carried our griefs and so on a man acquainted with grief and so on but go on where it says he'll make his grave with a rich man in his death, numbered amongst the transgressors. It is an absolute eyewitness account of Calvary. There he is between two thieves, numbered amongst transgressors. There he is buried in a rich man's tomb. Who could have thought it out? No wonder two or three hundred, two hundred years ago people were convinced that that portion of Isaiah had been written in after Calvary. I don't wonder at it. It's almost an eyewitness account, not only of what happened at Calvary, but of New Testament doctrine. Oh, well. Oh, someone says, you don't convince me, I'm awfully sorry. Well, now listen. I'll take you then again to Psalm 22. Now, this is King David. And listen, listen how the psalm opens. My God, my God, why? thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? Read through the psalm. It says, it's an eyewitness account. But where is it an eyewitness account? This time it's not an eyewitness account of someone standing in the crowd watching the cross. Here is an eyewitness account from the cross itself, looking at the people. And there within the crucified form of Christ, you are looking out of his eyes and you see the people. They're gaping at me. Listen to them. They cry out. He trusted. Come down. He he trusted in God. Let God save him if he thinks he is the darling of God and so on. You know that Psalm 22. Mm -hmm. And then he looks down to the the foot of the cross and he says, they cast lots on my garment. And then, even when he is dead, it's still as if you're looking at it from his... They pierced. They didn't break any bone. They didn't break any of his bones, all his bones he keeps. How did that song get written? What experience was David going through that he could write such a thing? It's not true of David. He never had quite an experience like that. Weed it. Go home and weed it. No, the answer is this. It was the Spirit of Christ in David, testifying unto the sufferings of Christ. Well, I've only given you a few. Uh, prophecies that have been fulfilled. I could go on, I could go on, I could go on. But you see why the Lord Jesus was so absolutely convinced there, not one, not one jot, nor one tittle of the law shall pass away till all these things be fulfilled. My dear friends, there are a lot more things that are yet to be fulfilled, and there's not going to be one jot nor tittle of it will pass away till everything has been fulfilled. Just as it has been, it will be. That's our absolute faith in the authority of God's Word. Well, there you are. There's something else for you to think about. I could tell you about Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. There you've got the most amazing portrayal of the, gen- of, the, of, the, of the times of the Gentiles, right from Babylon, right down to our own day, taking in us every bit of it's been fulfilled except the last part, when finally the whole thing will be destroyed, by the emergence from heaven of the stone not cut with hands. That's Christ. Everything fulfilled. Well, go on. But the third thing that supports the claim of divine authority, uh, it is the unity of the Bible. The Bible has 66 books. I think you all know that, 39 and 22. And it has different um, human authors, and backgrounds, and it was uh, given at different times, they lived in different times, and even their language was different in some cases. Yet there is only one theme that runs throughout from beginning to end. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is woven together into one great theme And it is woven together without any editorial committee whatsoever at any time. Now this is within itself one of the most remarkable evidences for divine authorship. And therefore for the authority of the Bible. When you take going right back to the beginning Moses and when you take going right toward the end the Apostle John you have two men who lived at very different times parted by thousands of years whose backgrounds were different whose way of life even was different and yet somehow or other they correspond. Did they know they were corresponding? Did John make a careful study of the Old Testament (coughs) and then sit down and write so that he actually concluded I believe that it is beyond the the powers of the human mind to have done it, there is so much which is obviously unsuspecting, which is a conclusion of what has gone before. And it is even more remarkable when you get men like Job and you get men uh, women like Ruth and others who obviously had nothing to do with each other and you get the Song of Solomon by whoever wrote it, Solomon or someone else, and uh, you get another book, shall we say, like Hosea. None of these knew each other, they had different backgrounds, they lived at different times, and yet they had a theme. Now the interesting thing is that these men probably couldn't even read what the others had said. Some of the matter hadn't even been collected together. And yet somehow there is a thread that runs through it all. It, it's in, not in just a few things, it's in all kinds of things. Types, for instance, in Scripture. The dove is the same from beginning to end. The raven is the same from beginning to end. There are all kinds of types. The olive tree, the fig tree, the vine. All different things from beginning to end run right the way through and have the same symbolic meaning. Well, of course, we can argue, someone can argue that that may have been known and that that symbolism may have been used. That is true, but nevertheless, there's much else that is quite remarkable. Take the matter of the cherubim, and you find that Ezekiel borrows a tremendous amount from, uh, from Babylon uh, when, he, uh, when he comes to uh, um, uh, write down about the cherubim. And he, he, it's not that he just borrows something from heathen and pagan sources, but he brings the whole matter of the cherubim onto another level. He doesn't depart from the original. He adds to it. He develops it. And somehow or other, we begin to see something that we never saw before. So that he, without Ezekiel, we couldn't understand the cherubim. When we come to John the apostle, he doesn't know anything about Babylon except that he knows it is a symbol of the world. Yet his, his description of the cherubim is not the same as Ezekiel, and yet it corresponds. So we can go on and can go on and can go on. The Bible is a unity from beginning to end. And it is interesting that all the books come slowly together. They are recognized bit by bit, part by part. As it were until finally uh, we find we have what we call the scriptures i mentioned a little earlier that the book of revelation was one of the last pieces of the bible to be finally and universally recognized as canonical and that is true and yet now none of us would question the book of revelation we see it as an absolute conclusion to the rest of the bible it's the top stone without it Much would just be unfinished and unconcluded, yet here we've got it all in the Book of Revelation. But it wasn't that some committee got together and finally decided. It was a long, long battle until there was universal recognition and finally it slipped into its rightful place. Now, when you understand all that, I've often spoken to you about Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3 and Revelation chapter 20, 21 and 22, how those three chapters at the beginning and three at the end completely correspond. That within itself is absolutely remarkable. And uh, it, uh, the, the interesting thing is that uh, in John's day, he never knew that the book, his book, his book, book of Revelation that he had put down, he had written down, was going to be the final word of the Bible. That's the interesting thing. Many centuries after he was dead and gone, it finally came to its place at the end of the Bible. That's the interesting thing. If there was any collection of things today uh, in John's day, it's quite different to what we have now. But you see, the, the, the thing that is so utterly interesting is that John's revelation has got to its right place. And he wasn't the one who got it there. That's the point. You see, if he'd sort of sat down and said, Now look, I'm going to write a conclusion to the Bible. I'm going to conclude the whole thing so that the whole thing's clear to everyone. And now I'm going to... He was apostle. He could have said to well, him, Now look here, you must all just see that this gets into its right place. He never did anything of the kind. He put it down. He knew it was the word of God and he left it to the Holy Spirit. And centuries, the centuries of conflict until finally it came into its right place. Right. Well, I'll leave that with you. There's a lot else, again, we could say about, about that, but we'll leave it. Then another thing that we must say in support of this divine authorship, and therefore of the authority of the Bible, is the amazing power inherent within Scripture in all its parts. An inherent power to speak. Have you ever had the Bible speak to you? Have you ever had an obscure bit of the book of Job leap out? of the text that almost hits you between the eyes? Have you ever had a part of a story in Judges just come out to you as if God was actually defining to you the circumstances in which you live and was actually telling you what to do? Have you ever had some part of one chronicles that you never thought even existed and all of a sudden you saw something that, well, that's what I'm talking about. It's not only the Sermon on the Mount. It's not only 1 Corinthians 13. It's not only Isaiah 43, beloved of all dear and old Christians. No, it's not just those old, well-worn parts of the Bible. I'm talking about parts of the Bible which sometimes seem to have little to say. And yet when you're in a time of trouble, it's a strange thing how an obscure bit of the Scripture that you've never read, or if you have read, you've never thought about, comes right out of it, and you live on it. And if you believe it, it becomes living, powerful, and active. And it does something in you. It does something in you. Now, why does the Bible do that? Now, listen. It's not just cranks and health and health. The interesting thing is this. That you can go right back to the days of the psalmists, And you'll find that all of them have got a common experience. Old Testament and New Testament. All of us. We've all got a common experience the Bible lives to. It is the word of God to us. It comes alive to us. When we're in trouble, we call to the Lord. And he heard us. spoke to us. Now, what is this thing that binds us all together? All different languages, all different backgrounds, all different ages even. And yet we've all found God's word is not just literature. It's not just a book. Why doesn't a wonderful Uh, The works of Shakespeare are so wonderful in themselves, so telling. Why don't they leap out that Well, they have a lot to say sometimes about human situations, for those of you who read uh, Shakespeare. Uh, But, you know, it's not the same as Scripture. It just doesn't come out at you in the same way. There are things that you think, how clever, what a genius! How did he think that? an insight into human nature, but the Bible's different, it's not only got an insight into human nature, it's not only got genius, divine genius behind it, it's got more, somehow or other, it talks to our heart, it explains things to us, it gets into us, it does something for us, we can be absolutely down and suddenly God's word comes to us and we're up, and we're out. And it's not only just when you're depressed and things like that, you know, God's Word has lent life to some people on beds of sickness, and some Word of God has come, and they've gone up and never got back down on that bed of sickness again. Other people had other troubles, the, and the Word of the Lord's come, to, and some had just taken the Word of the You see, it's not just nonsense. I know there's a, lot of, uh, there are, there's a lot that is fraudulent and there's a lot that's hypocritical and there is a facade about many Christian matters but there's also a lot that's genuine and there are those who know the Word of God and the Word of God's got in them and they've found that the Word of God has an amazing power inherent within it to speak, to change, to convict, to comfort. It's got all this. It can create faith in us, when we're faithless. Have you ever known that? Period of absolute darkness, when you can't, there's not a flicker of faith in you, and then suddenly the word of the Lord comes to you, and something in you just weakly, but deliberately takes hold of it, and faith comes, and you're out. I've known that again and again, in just material provisions no, the Lord will never provide on this. Never, never, never provide on this. And darkness coming in, then some word of the Lord has come, and something's flickered within, and something said, oh, yes, he will, yes, he will. And it's taken a hold of God's word, and God has done it. Well, I will leave that matter again, but I... Oh, I could say so much again about it, you see. It is so contemporary. God's Word is contemporary. Dear old Job, you know, he'd have a fit if we took him down Piccadilly today. If We took him to, to uh, London Airport and he saw those great big things taking off. Poor old Job. He wouldn't know whether he was on his head or on his feet. He just, he would be flabbergasted. And yet, Job has written things from his day when the mode of transport was the camel and nothing else hardly was known. He's written something which is as as contemporary as anything in the newspaper this evening. It can get right into my contemporary situation and speak contemporary language to me. That's the whole point. I don't know if any of you have ever had God speak to you from Genesis 1 or 2. I have, and he's spoken to me about a contemporary situation in a very contemporary way from an uncontemporary chapter of the Bible. But you know, that's God's word. It's living. In other words, it's not dead. It's not historic. It's not yesterday. It's today. It's living. So all God's word is something to say to the 20th century, in a sense. Even the most obscure part. But that, again, we must leave. Then there is another sobering fact. That's all right, we are ending. Um, There is another sobering fact which supports the claim to the authority of God's word. It's rather negative, but it is uh, a fact. It is that as soon as a man begins to question its authority and full inspiration, as soon as he begins to belittle its power, as soon as he takes a superior position to it, That one man or woman opens the floodgate of doubt and unbelief and before very long he loses his joy, he loses his peace, he loses his confidence and he loses his spiritual life. Now in my life, it's not very long, I've been saved, I I hardly dare count the years now, but I think it's twenty years. And in that time I have seen two things. I have seen a number of people who had liberal or sort of what I would consider to be unsound views of the Scripture, and I have seen them move from that view to complete and utter faith in the authority and inspiration of God's Word and I have seen always the same thing. I've seen them get peace, I've seen them get joy, I've seen their lives become full of faith and I've seen them growing in Christ. I have also seen people do the opposite, move from a complete confidence in the authority of God's Word onto an unsure, a basis where they are not sure, where they doubt, where they question. And I have seen exactly the same spiritual deterioration. Why? That's the point. Why? There's a point. And it's a big point. It's a factor. There is something about the authority of God's Word which is absolutely fundamental to the well-being of our spiritual life. I'll leave that. You can look at it, if you want, in 2 Peter chapter 3.16, where it speaks of people who are un- who are ignorant and unstable and it doesn't just mean uh, simple-minded it means ignorant, spiritually ignorant and spiritually unstable they wrest these things to their own destruction there were some men in in Paul's day you remember teachers of God's Word who evidently had a standard a standard of intelligence and a standard of spiritual character as well they got into trouble, and Paul says they've gone, they've made spiritual shipwreck. It is interesting, isn't it? And then again, the endurance of God's Word, the endurance of God's Word. Do you know, here is another amazing thing about God's Word. God's Word, as we now have it, has endured millenniums, millenniums of opposition, and of antagonism, and not only that, but just sheer carelessness in many cases. When you think of just the Old Testament, it came through Egypt. How did we get it? Why wasn't it destroyed? How have we got it in the way we have got it? People start talking about bits and pieces being missing, copies, feathers and all. But the amazing thing is, look what we've got! When you think of it, it went into Egypt and it came out of Egypt. It went through 40 years in the wilderness. It went into the promised land. It could have so easily been absolutely mutilated. Where are the other records that we've got of ancient writings? Half of them are mutilated. But the Bible has come through to us in a sense, in the most remarkable way. As far as God is concerned, maybe a lot of it's missing that was originally there. I don't know, but all I know is that all God intended obviously is here. There is a complete uh, theme of unity running through it all. It's remarkable, isn't it? All that we need is there. That's the point. Maybe bits and pieces have dropped out. What does it matter? The point is that uh, what we all need is there. But it's not in Egypt. What about all all those years, all those centuries uh, of trouble and difficulty and so on within the land? Then what about the Assyrian exile? What about the Babylonian exile? when the whole lot was destroyed, when all the archives were completely burnt, when the whole thing was finished. It's the most amazing thing. We have very little of Jewish history because it was all destroyed in the Assyrian sieges and the Babylonian sieges. But the Bible, we've got it all, all that we need, all that we call the Bible. That's amazing. What about the Roman conquest? Oh, and so we could go on and on and on. It is quite remarkable. It is really quite remarkable. And then when you come on through the persecutions and the Christian writings and the way the Christian writings were destroyed in persecution after persecution, somehow or other God has preserved something. He's preserved the record. I, I suggest that if you wish to read the story, do F, read F.F. F. Bruce and a few of the others who've written accounts of the way we've got the Bible. It's amazing. And it's not only that, you know, when you think of the men who've died to give us this book, People who died in flame or died in, in dungeons only to give us this book. Not that we might take superior position. Not that we might belittle it. Not that we might just feel that it's not really so much. No, those men gave their lives because they believed that this book, in its entirety, was the word of God and was worth dying for in order to let us have it. They died. We've got the book. And it's free. Well, again, you see, there's something else we ought also to remember that we all have the Bible in translation, isn't it an amazing thing? There are very few people that can read the Bible in its original languages. We've all got it in translation, we read every nation of the world in a translation, and in every nation it's the same word of God, powerful, living, and active. Able to do the same work. What book could be so translated? I know because I had to study scriptures of the Buddhist and Taoist and Confucian uh, sort of Shintoist sects. And uh, I mean, I can only say this, that though I myself uh, reverence some of those scriptures, not as divinely inspired, but as a real qu- a real a result of a real quest after God, containing, in many cases real wisdom, Yet it is not true that they come anywhere near God's word. I know the difference. And I think you would know the difference too. Well, there we are, the authority of God's word. We are bound, therefore, I think, to say that as in all other essential matters, in the question of our salvation, in the question of what the church is, in the question of what the purpose of God is, God is absolute. He has defined it clearly from beginning to end. It is the same with his word. He hasn't left us to decide what is his word. He has given it to us, clearly defined, beginning to end. We, you and I, have to accept it by faith. He hasn't left it to the tender mercies of our own judgment and discretion. God has clearly defined what he has given to us. He gives it to us to be received through faith. There are things which are difficult to understand. There are things which are hard to reconcile with other things in the Bible. There are some things which seem incompatible with God. Those things we will admit and we will seek to deal with if the Lord gives us time another evening. But the whole point is this. We expect difficulties when the finite is dealing with the infinite. And when the imperfect comes to deal with the perfect. And when the ignorant, relatively speaking, comes to deal with the all-wise, wisdom personified, we expect difficulties, we can't tie up everything, we are created, and this is the creator. The amazing thing is this, that God, in the compass of a small volume, has, in, in weak human language, has expressed... A vast and endless universe of inexhaustible wisdom. You and I will never come to the end of it. Centuries upon centuries upon centuries, men have been studying this book and they've not come to the end of it. They've not plumbed its depths. No wonder Paul gets lost in it and talks of it about the depths of the, uh, of the, and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You're lost in this book. It's just not an ordinary thing. It's quite, it's quite remarkable and it's all contained in that book. That's remarkable. Only God could have done it. To have put something within those pages which no human mind has yet fully mastered. And those that have tried to master it have shipwrecked themselves. No, here we have something which I believe (coughs) must speak to us. Once we trust what God has put within the compass of this one volume, we find that if we trust it and obey it, we shall discover it powerful enough to change not only individuals, not only nations, but history itself. The Bible is one of the most remarkable things in the whole history of the human race. And should there be anyone who still doubts whether God could have so spoken to man then I must ask you whether God is God. And if God is God then it is possible, gloriously (coughs) possible. And if he has done it then the requirement is reverent faith, honest inquiry, and true humility as we approach this book. Thus, you see, we see that Scripture is given to us that we might be furnished completely. We see the supreme authority of the Word of God. It is like an act of parliament, operative and authoritative to the last and farthest extremity of its letter. Shall we pray?